This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. We are going to set a high degree of difficulty for this week's episode. Uh, Later in the program, we're going to be talking on the radio about a visual medium, photography. Uh, Before we get to that, we are going to figure out a way how to talk about the city's proposed budget for fiscal year 2020 without making you guys black out from boredom. So here to talk to me about that is going to be uh, Mike Clark Madison, who is the Austin Chronicle's news editor. Mike, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, So I I kid, this Mm -hmm. is actually really essential stuff. And in this week's issue, you have done a wonderful job of of not boring people to death with the subject of the city budget. So, well, I try. I try. Yes. I mean, it is something that is important for people to know and I think that it is useful for us to at least try to get the narrative of the budget across to them. And this year is interesting because it is a sort of transition year before we go into the uh new era that we're expecting going forward with the newer, lower revenue caps that were imposed on the city's property tax authority by the legislature in this last session. So there's a lot of talk at the city and all other governments around who levy taxes about what they're going to do to cut the numbers that they need to cut in the upcoming years. This year, They still have the ability to go to the maximum tax rate that they have now, and they're taking it. And what is that maximum rate? It's 8% above the current revenue gained by property tax. That is not the same as an 8% increase in the tax rate. The Mm -hmm. actual tax rate is going down because property values in Austin, of course, are going up, up, up. Mm-hmm. The effective tax rate, which is the same as last year dollar in terms of total dollars, is lower. And so 8% above that is where this budget is built. That okay. is the rollback rate. <laughs> if you go farther than that, mm-hmm. you have to have uh, an election for voters to approve it. Okay. So that kind of math makes my brain It's already explode. you're already exactly. you're already gone. So yes, exactly. Realistically, <clears throat> what does that mean for Austinites in terms of what comes out of their pocket? Um, this year, next fiscal year 2020, you will be looking at about a $100 impact for the owner of the mythical typical Austin home. Okay. Median home values now high 300s, low 400s. Uh, the Exact number is like ninety nine twenty six, mm-hmm. just under a hundred dollars. There is no increase planned this year for energy rates, water rates, trash rates, anything like that. All of the difference is going to be in property taxes, but that's the impact, and that's about a two point five percent increase from what last year's total impact, financial impact of city government is. Okay, so what does that hundred dollars get me? What kind of services are being provided well, by the city? Yeah, that money. Uh, it's paying for, obviously, police, fire, and EMS. Those are the largest public safety departments, make up about two-thirds of the general fund, which is where the taxes go. And it's not just property taxes, but also sales tax, 
and fees and fines and the transfers that we get from the electric and water utilities, Austin Energy and Austin Water, because we own them and they're not corporate third-party corporations, we get the dividends Mm -hmm. that would otherwise go to stockholders. So that helps go to the general fund, and that pays for things like police, fire, EMS, parks, libraries. Um, Those departments, of course, also have large budgets. And some of the changes that in this year's upcoming budget that people are noticing or that the city wants you to notice, there will be 30 recommended new police staffing positions, new police officers. That's in accordance to the staffing plan that they adopted a couple years ago to keep up with benchmarks for a city of our size. There will also, though, be victim services counselors added. There will be new mental health services for various populations. There will be more money put into DNA evidence processing since the uh, crime lab meltdown of a couple years Mm -hmm. ago, including making sure that we don't have another backlog of sexual assault evidence kits, which was a very large problem for them in the last year. So there are things like that. But the biggest story here is that in order to get as much money as possible before this legislatively imposed you know, cap comes down next year, that left the city with approximately $15 million to spend this year on one-time things that didn't create costs that were going to be in the budget for the future. And almost all of that money is going to programs to address the homelessness crisis. Hmm. That includes a lot of money being put into the city's housing trust fund, which is its own, our own local unlimited source of money, the most flexible source of money we have to spend on housing and homelessness, plus paying for services that are being provided under what's called the pay-for-success model, which is sort of like civic entrepreneurship. Providers are proposing to create new innovative ways to deliver some social services, and if they attain the outcomes that they promise, Mm -hmm. they'll get paid. If not, they won't. But uh, the city is planning to pre-fund that for five years, and that's a initiative that's got a lot of attention. It's very exciting to the people who are working in that in, in the homelessness space. Uh, there's also money for the new South Austin shelter. There's money to open the new Salvation Army, Salvation Army Rathgaber Rath Center shelter, and also for future safe camping or safe parking areas to help address the impact of the recent changes to city ordinances that said that it's okay to be camping in public, but now we the city wants to provide places for that to happen safely. Mm-hmm. So is it fair to say that this budget is sort of a reflection of the city's priorities right this second? It is. It is. And I think they have done a good job of keeping in touch with the, the sort of triangle here, the, the city manager and city staff who actually do the budgeting and then the mayor and the city council, and then the community. Mm-hmm. Those three elements, I think they've done a pretty good job this year of listening to each other throughout the process. What's happened in past years is that the manager and staff will produce a budget based on the input that they get from other city departments, but it's fairly insular. And when it comes out, members of the community or members of the council 
feel like they didn't get heard or there's a lot of like racket at the end of the process to try to reallocate money. And that's not happening this time. So And that's a, that's I mean that's a little surprising, right? That normally the budget is met with uh, some anger. Yeah, from there's usually sides. somebody is usually complaining about something. Sure. And so far not so much. Um, there are advocates, uh, justice advocates, who were interested in looking, taking a more critical look at the funding that would go to pay what I mentioned earlier about 30 new police officers, whether that funding should be used to help staff specific kinds of police services like mental health, improved mental health services, or training for police officers rather than just adding more sworn staff. But generally, you know, the the conflicts that you've seen in previous years, you, you aren't seeing them now. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of proposals that are starting to rise to the surface between now and September 10th, which is when the budget gets approved, from the council. One that's very interesting that was announced today, uh, council members Greg Kassar and Delia Garza are proposing a $100,000 city spend in the budget to help groups that provide support abortion support, support for people who are seeking abortions, logistical rides, stays for the waiting period if they have to stay over, things like that. Mm -hmm. Things that make it easier for them to access their reproductive rights, which is still legal. The state has, um, in the last session, the state did pass a bill that made it illegal for the city to to enter into new contracts with groups that provide abortion, like Planned Parenthood. SB 22 is the bill that was passed that was trying to get the city to end its relationship with Planned Parenthood. And this isn't going to do that. These are all people who are groups that are helping individual women and communities in need who want to provide support for those services. Mm -hmm. Now, in that proposed budget, was there money put off to the side exactly for something like this, or does this money have to come from It'll come else. from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. There's a little wiggle room. It can be as simple as realloc- you know, two positions in one place get moved to another place, or mon- money that's being allocated to the council offices themselves sometimes will be given up to be used for pilots like mm-hmm. this. So what is the next step in this budget process? This is proposed. It has not yet been approved. Right. There are hearings. Uh, The council meets next week. And the mandatory hearing that they have to have about the tax rate is on the 28th of this month. And then the budget adoption is scheduled for September 10th. Okay. Let's talk some more about the states, the the revenue cap, and the politics behind that. Can you kind of explain what exactly is happening and what it says about the Texas legislature coming after Austin yet again? Well, (laughs) it's it's other places as well. I think what it says is that the Texas legislature has realized or is controlled, of course, by you know Republicans and largely voices of suburbanites and suburban communities where there are a lot of homeowners that have a lot of valuable properties that are increasing in value because Texas is growing. It's not just Austin. Um, And people are complaining about their taxes. And they have been for a long time. And, of course, there's a lot of people in the Republican side of the political establishment who've kind of made their careers complaining about taxes. 
And so this is a way that they have been trying for years to say that the legislature is going to do something to keep your taxes down, which, you know, in a state where the state is growing, property values are growing, services, demand for services is growing, there's only so much you can do to keep the cost down of providing those things. So the revenue cap is a way of acting like they're doing this. Um, for decades, the state has had this level at which cities could not go above that cap without asking the voters to approve their new tax rates. But 8%, where it had been before, is you know fairly high, high enough that no city has really, Austin's never had a TRE, tax ratification election. Starting next year, in the next budget cycle, it's going to be 3.5%. So that's a little different. That's now, a lot different. That's a lot different. Is that causing some anxiety at City Hall? It is, because the city feels that even their built-in cost drivers, just wages, benefits, uh, new facilities that we approved in bond programs, like new libraries and parks and such, and staff that needs to open them, those things alone, not with any like fluff, will grow by about 4% annually. And with property taxes capped at 3.5, and they're worried that other revenue in the general fund, like sales taxes or development fees, are actually growing even slower than that, that they're expecting 3% growth annually in that. So it, it ends up being a delta of about 10 to $15 million that they're looking at having to try to get out of the budget structurally long-term in order to keep the deficit from growing. So we should assume that next year's budget process will maybe not be quite as... Maybe not be as rosy, but they have... uh, The city is very interested in using this year. The way that they've structured this financially is that this budget balances and next year's budget balances. And so over the course of the next year, they can do the difficult conversations and the hard choice making that will allow them to cut things or decide where to raise taxes, raise other kinds of revenue, ask other people to pay for things that the city pays for now, private sector, other governments, um, and how to figure all of that out before they have to bite the bullet. All right, then. Well, Mike, thank you for making sense of something that I think a lot of a lot of people find really intimidating. In this week's issue, Mike has a big feature about the budget and really breaks down the numbers. You know, we've got pie charts, we've got graphs that really show... Pretty colors. Yeah, pretty colors that really show where the money is going. Uh, and we will be continuing to track the, the budget approval process. So, Mike, thank you so much for coming in. Hey, thank you, Kim. Welcome back to the Austin Chronicle Show. We are in the studios of Co-op Community Radio, 91.7 FM in Austin, and live streaming through koop.org. I'm your host, Kim Jones, editor of the Austin Chronicle. 
I am very excited to introduce our next guest. Her name is Martha Grinnan. And if you went to clubs in Austin to hear music from roughly the mid to late 70s to the early aughts, then chances are you saw her with her camera. Her rock photography is currently the subject of an exhibit called Shoot Like a Girl at South Pop, the South Austin Museum of Popular Culture on South Lamar. Martha, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. I would like to start with the the origin story. Um, You have said photography chose me. What does that mean? I received a camera for Christmas when I was 10 years old. And um, that was the beginning. But I didn't really get into photography until I was almost busted at Green Hall for smoking a joint. (laughs) Okay. I'm liking where this is going. (laughs) Please tell us more. (laughs) Well, I didn't get busted. And I um, ended up going to... Phoenix, Arizona, where the band that I'd saw that I'd seen that night at uh, Green Hall was opening for the Rolling Stones. One of my co-workers' sister was married to the bass player in the band, so they had said, "If you, you know, if you pay your fare out, we'll get you backstage." So that was really where it started, mm-hmm. and I started going out three or four times a week in addition to my day job to take photos of bands that I liked. Okay. So you started as a fan and sort of segued into becoming a rock photographer? Yes. Just before I left for Phoenix, I grabbed my old Pentax camera Mm -hmm. and took it with me. And I didn't manage to get any photos of the Stones except for Bill Wyman because we weren't supposed to be taking photos backstage. But that was the beginning. Uh Did your relationship to music change when you became a photographer? I I don't know. I've always loved music. Uh I um, have a huge collection of vinyl and tapes and... CDs. Sure. And I don't listen as much as I used to, but um, I'm always open to hearing new things. Uh-huh. Well, tell, tell, tell our listeners some of the bands that you have shot over the years. Well, I went, when I was getting ready for this show, I went through my contact sheets. And it turns out that most of my photos are of the Joe Ely Band, True Believers. And Macumba Love. <laughs> okay. I don't know the last one. I know the other two. Macumba Love was an offshoot of the Joe Ely Band. Okay. And just lasted a couple years, 82, 83, and included Jesse Taylor, the guitar player, and Mike um, Kindred, who played keyboards. Mm-hmm. And um, Smokey Joe, who died recently, was the sax guy and um, we had a drummer and it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Did you realize before you looked back at your contact sheets did you know that those were the bands that you had covered the most or were you surprised at all to discover? That was what I discovered. Uh I you know I really loved the True Believers and I was out almost every to one of every one of their performances Uh in Austin and also the Ely Band because um, I was in love with Jesse Taylor. 
that must have been an incredibly tough lifestyle uh, to, you know, you're going to shows all night, you have day jobs, you know, sort of legendarily rock stars do not clean living isn't necessarily what they're famous for. I mean, what, what was that like that, those years? Well, um, I didn't know any musicians who were into hard drugs. Uh-huh. And I really, now looking back, don't know how I did as much as I did because I was also raising a son. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Who I took with me sometimes when it wasn't a school night. Uh-huh. And um, there's a photo of him at the Continental Club with his head in his arms sleeping. Oh, and my gosh. <laughs> beer bottles all around him. Sure. Oh, but I bet he had some good stories. Yeah. Well, he got a uh, free T-shirt from The Clash when we went to see them. That's a pretty good story <laughs> right there. Uh, what was your relationship like with with the bands that you were covering? I mean, were you friends? Was we there a distance? We were friends, um, mm-hmm. especially Macumba Love. They, um, a couple of them lived in South Austin in what we called the Macumba Hut, and we would go there after gigs and have a few drinks or tokes or whatever. And um, it was just fun. You know, mm-hmm. they were fun people to be with. Mm-hmm. So you no longer shoot rock photography, at least not the way that you used to, no. right? Did that happen all at once or was that something that happened sort of well, gradually? Well, the moment was 2000. I was on the stage trying to shoot, um, oh, what's that Jack, ba- Jack Black band? Tenacious D. Yes, yes. Okay, they're pretty And rowdy. nearly got pushed off the stage by some young whippersnapper. Wow. And I thought, why am I doing this? You know, I wasn't, there were people, other photographers had already gone digital and I hadn't. I was still Mm -hmm. shooting film and I just thought, I'm not ready for digital and I'm not ready for this kind of behavior. Mm. (laughs) So that was, that was it. I clarifying moment for you. Yeah. Do you still feel that way about digital or have you moved into it? No, no, I'm totally into digital. Most of my show uh, while well, I scanned the negatives and then printed them mm-hmm. on my uh, digital printer. I haven't been in the dark room probably 10 years. Sure. Um, Do you miss that And at I keep all? thinking sort of I want to get back. Yeah. I'm sorry? Do you miss that, the yeah. tactile development? Yeah. 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 I would run home from a gig, put the film in the can, develop the film, get up the next morning, and do contact sheets and five by seven prints of the best shots and give them to the musicians. Oh my gosh. And then go to my day job. Sure. Well, and for some part of this, that day job was at the Chronicle, right? You were photo editor and then art director. Did that overlap with the years that you were shooting? Yes, definitely. Because I had, you know, entrance to anywhere I wanted Mm -hmm. in Austin because of that. Yeah. That must have been an interesting time. Was That was the 80s that yes. you were? Okay. Yeah. Mostly the 80s, well, 90s, and uh-huh. but mainly the 80s was the heaviest sure. time. Uh, I wanted to ask you, the name of your exhibit is Shoot Like a Girl, and which, you know, obviously, girls in the, in the title. And I'm wondering what kind of impact your gender has had on your experience working, on your, the work itself, on your perspective. Or is it just, I am a girl, therefore, this is my work? Um, probably, this is my work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't think I th- I know that I got special treatment sometimes because I was a woman mm-hmm. and could just smile my way into places. Sure, <laughs> whatever it takes, right? <laughs> yes. Okay, so you no longer shooting rock photography. What did you? What became the new passion? I um, had always wondered about the country of Albania. I had lived within two miles of it in Corfu, Greece, for two years in the early 70s. But at that time, uh, Albania was completely shut off. It was the most communist of all the communist countries. Mm -hmm. And in 91, it opened up. In 92, I had a job uh, that allowed me to take a month off. So I went back to Greece and I went to Albania and I was just so amazed. It was so totally different from any place I'd ever been that I kept going back and um, kept meeting people and it became my life, my, my second life mm-hmm. for, for quite a few years. The last time I was there was 2008. Okay. And I haven't, I, I haven't decided what I needed to do next, so I haven't really been anywhere. And some health problems have also kept me more close to home. Mm-hmm. Well, if listeners want to see uh, some of the images from, from Kosovo and also some of your, your rock photography, they can visit your website, yes. uh, which is marthagrenan.com. Yes, but none of my... Music photos are up there. Oh, okay. It's all my work in the Balkans. Okay. Well, I've got to I've got to get the music photos up now. Well, but <laughs> or you can go see Martha's exhibit, uh, which is currently open and will be open uh, through September third at the South Austin Museum of Pop Culture on South Lamar Boulevard. Martha, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That's going to do it this week uh, on the Austin Chronicle show. Uh, thank you to my guests, Mike Clark Madison and Martha Grennan. Thank you to our engineer, Evan Hearn. And thank you to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. And just a reminder, it is best of Austin time. You can cast a ballot in this year's Reader's Poll, our 30th year, uh, either online at austinchronicle.com or in this week's issue. <laughs>